Make your way to John chapter 7. If you need a Bible, keep your hand up. Is good? All right. John chapter 7. And we're going to be looking today at a, a few different things because uh, we come to an interesting section in John's gospel because from John chapter 7 on, we are moving ahead basically to the last six months of Jesus' ministry. The book of John really fast forwards everything because here we are only in chapter 7. There's another number of chapters to go, but we kind of fast forward right to near the end of Jesus' ministry where we really begin to focus on that time leading up to the cross. All right. Some have said that from John chapter 5 to John chapter 7 covers a period of up to two years. We're not sure exactly, but uh, he's kind of just skipped over a few things. And notice what we read here now in John 7 verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So there's Jesus. Uh, And John really focuses primarily on the activity and the ministry going on in Jerusalem. But we know that Jesus occupied most of his time and ministry up in Galilee region. Why? Well, it tells us right here, because the Jews sought to kill him. And any time that you know somebody's out to get you, out to kill you, you're going to basically want to do everything you can to avoid them. Am I right? Anybody with me on that? You know somebody's out to get you. You're like, I don't want to be around them. I'm going to go the opposite direction. So that's kind of Jesus right now. We're going to see as we move to this passage that he's doing this, not because he's afraid, but because he's operating on this divine timetable of the Lord. And we'll see that very clearly here. So here's Jesus ministering in Galilee. John makes that clear, even though John focuses primarily on the the activity in Jerusalem. So he kind of centers his his gospel in John to these different feasts that are going on. So verse 2 tells us that it was the Feast of Tabernacles that was at hand. So that means that people are making their way to Jerusalem. It was one of the three main feasts that all Jewish males were required to observe, Feast of, uh, of you know Passover, Pentecost, now Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was a super fun exciting kind of feast it would last for eight days and what they would do is they would commemorate they'd remember how the lord delivered them out of egypt and and provided for them through the wilderness as they would be camping out basically under the stars setting up camp moving on god would lead them by that pillar of cloud by the day provide some then a pillar of fire at night giving them warmth in the cold wilderness evenings so at the feast of tabernacles or Feast of Booths, as it was also called, they would come into Jerusalem and they'd set up these temporary shelters where they would camp out. So kids got excited over Feast of Tabernacles because they'd camp out all through the week. It was an exciting, fun time. But it was a time where it was very a joyous celebration, just remembering God's deliverance, God's provision. So this feast got really wrapped up in just a lot of joy and anticipation so that's the feast that's coming up at at hand here now there's a couple things that got added to the feast later on later on there's a couple couple kind of practices and 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 rituals that got accompanied with the feast of tabernacles one of them was that the priests would go and gather water from the pools of siloam and then bring them back up towards the temple and kind of pour it out on the the southern steps of the temple and then they would also begin to light 
lanterns, lights along the, the courtyard of the temple. Which is very interesting because there in John 8, Jesus records that I'm the light of the world. And then to the woman at the well in John 4, Jesus would say, this water is not going to sustain you or satisfy you, but I'm going to give you living water if you'll receive that. So here's water being poured out, the Feast of Tabernacles, lights being lit up, all again, I think, pointing to, wonderfully pointing to Jesus and the ministry that he would do. So here's the work that's going on. But Jesus, you see, he's not ready to go down there right now because the Jews, as John records about the Jews in verse 1, he's referring to not just Jewish people nationally, but again, he's referring to the, the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders that just grew and grew and grew in animosity towards Jesus. And, and we'll see why in a, in a second here. Well, in fact, let me just share with you why. Because it's all stemming from this work that Jesus did in John 5, where he came into Jerusalem went to the pools of Bethesda, and he healed a paralytic man that had been an invalid for 38 years. Healed this man, but he healed him on the Sabbath. And the Jews didn't like that. They thought he's breaking the Sabbath. We'll cover that as we move along here. But this is why there's just animosity growing. Read on here in verse 3. As the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand, his brothers, verse 3, therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now that's interesting. Because here's his brothers now. Now, here's a question for you guys. Do you know if these were younger brothers or older brothers? Anybody know? Younger brothers. Is Jesus born of a virgin? Meant... She evidently didn't have children before, right? Just trick question for you. Just making sure you're, you're awake and following. You're like, hmm, good. No, okay. It's, oh, yeah. Okay. So here's his brothers. Now, they're all encouraging Jesus now. Hey, feast is coming up. And again, this is when all the crowds would be really swelling in Jerusalem. And they're looking at this going, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, well, here's your opportunity to go and make yourself known now to the crowds. Here's your chance to come into Jerusalem and let everybody know who you are, what your mission is all about, and this is it. This is the moment. But you see, they're not doing this to encourage and support and help Jesus. They're kind of doing this in a sarcastic way. They're doing this because they don't believe him. It says in verse 5, they did not yet believe in him. It's amazing. Think about that. Now, just like younger brothers, I mean, these guys are being a little bit bratty. They're kind of egging on. Anybody have younger brothers? All right. You know what that can be like, right? I'm actually a younger brother. I shouldn't have said that, but it uh, wasn't like that in my home. No, it's the other way around. But younger brothers, here they are, just kind of ganging up on Jesus like, ah you think you're the guy, the Messiah? Now's your chance. Come on, show us what you're made. They're egging him on. They didn't believe in him. Listen, I think for you moms out here, I think that's kind of a word of encouragement for you because you, I know, oftentimes will find in your own home, siblings are just kind of butting heads. They're quarreling. They're warring. You're sitting here going, what must I do? Well, take heart because even in Jesus's home, right? Even with the son of God there in the home, here's brothers that are quarreling and fighting and they're butting heads and they're not all, you know, agreeing on the same thing. So take heart, you know, but here's the neat thing is that we do know that some of his brothers eventually gave their life in trust to Jesus. And that came after 
the crucifixion and the resurrection. Some of his brothers, James and, and Judas, who ended up writing books, contributing to the New Testament, the book of James, the book of Judas. These were the half-brothers of Jesus, who evidently, obviously, got saved when they began to see Jesus, who gave his life on a cross, rose again. Listen, the cross is the great reconciler, isn't it? And it's important for us to recognize that it's the cross that we need to share with people. The, the work of Jesus Christ that he did to save us. Because we can love people all we want. But unless they see and hear the message of the cross. Jesus, no doubt in that home, was nothing but loving and gracious. Didn't help his brothers. It took the cross. Him dying and resurrecting again. To show them who he truly was. And their need then for him. And how we need to be sure that we're communicating that message of the cross to people. So, brothers didn't believe him. Look at verse 6. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So what does Jesus say there? Verse 6, my time has not yet fully come, right? That's what I was mentioning, that Jesus is, is operating. He's flowing in this total timing of God. It wasn't his time yet. Because if Jesus went into a situation and he began to show everybody, I'm the Messiah, he knew exactly what happened. Then the crowds would all come and say, all right, you're the guy. Let's, let's just kind of thrust you up. Onto the throne. Let's give you that role now as our king. Let's overthrow Rome. This wasn't the moment for that to happen. That will all come at Jesus' second coming. His first coming were, is where he's going to come and set up his rule in the heart of man. Allow people to see their need for him spiritually, not just physically. And so it's not his time yet. Now, again, that's going to point to the cross when he will eventually on on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry come riding into Jerusalem and allow the crowds to proclaim him, uh, the King, the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That will come at that time, but this is not the time. Jesus says, now's not my time. He knows that that would jeopardize his mission if kind of the cat got out of the bag too soon. That's why when he would heal somebody or do a good work, he'd say, be sure you don't tell anybody. You're listening to that and you're going... Why wouldn't you have that person go and spread the word of what you just did? But again, that would kind of incite just sort of almost a riot before it was the right time. My time's not yet, but he says, your time is always ready. See, what the brothers are doing and what a lot of people do is they just want to operate in their own timing. You see, for us, if we're not walking according to God's timing, our time is now always ready we're just like we need something done let's do it oh we don't need to consider the lord in this we don't need to ask the lord about that this seems like the opportune time let's go ahead and make it happen let's do it but how we need to learn to trust the lord and to rest in god's timing because god's timing is perfect and i'm starting to see more and more my timing is not now i need to rely on god's timing and it's a difficult thing you know why it's hard to rely on god's timing because his timing is not our timing. And I've begun to see that God's oftentimes in a lot less of a hurry than I am. 
Because we always see what needs to happen by action and in and, externals and peripherals. And we're like, let's make it happen. Let's do this. Let's do that. But God oftentimes is doing the work internally before he's doing that work externally. And that's that process that we need to trust the Lord. Go, okay, God, I know you're doing the work right now. I know you're not checked out on vacation. You're at work always. So I got to just trust in what you're doing and in your timing. And Jesus says as much to his brothers, your timing is always ready. And, and likewise, the world, he says in verse 7, cannot hate you, but it hates me. See, the brothers weren't desiring to follow God's timing or God's ways even, right? They're just doing things the way that they want. They're following the world system. When we talk about the world hating you, it's kind of like that idea of the world system that's in opposition to God. And a lot of people are just walking in that stream, just kind of being led along by that stream that's in opposition to God. And when you do so, well, you're not ever going to be in opposition or, or, or you know, struggling with the world at all. The world's going to accept you because they're like, this is the stream we're in. We're quite comfortable here. We're quite happy there. But Jesus came, you see, and he revealed a completely different way. In fact, he showed us the right way. And that's the difficult thing. When he says, the world hates me, but it doesn't hate you. Why does the world hate Jesus? Well, he says there, because I've revealed that its works are evil. Basically, he came and he began to point out the error of people and the stream that they were in that was in opposition to God. But you see, human nature is like, I don't want to be told what I'm doing wrong. I don't want to be corrected. I don't want to be questioned. I've chosen this path and I'm quite happy with it. And I'm just going to keep going in it. But Jesus comes and he shows the right way truth he comes and he shines this light of righteousness into the darkness of humanity and what oftentimes people do like what what jesus said in john uh john chapter one and uh in in john chapter three there were where people repel that light because they love their darkness they love their sin and so when jesus comes and he exposes that their reaction is not oh let me let me allow this to change me to help me, to encourage me. No, they go, I don't want to deal with it. So I'm going to just stay in opposition to Jesus. I'm going to hate Jesus now, right? And that's kind of what Jesus is pointing out here regarding his brothers, regarding his mission. So he tells them in verse 8, you go on up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So he encourages his brothers, you guys go ahead. You head on uh, down to Jerusalem. You go hit the feast. I'm not yet going. At this time. So what we're seeing here, and I didn't, I didn't put up our, our outline here, sorry. Um, but here's kind of what we've seen so far in verses 1 to 9, as we've seen, or verses 1 to 10. The beginning of the feast now, or before the feast, and this disbelief of his brothers. But now as we move into verse uh, 10 and 11 here, we begin to see the, the middle of the feast. And we're going to look at this debate that begins to wage on here now. Uh, among the people that are there to celebrate the feast and their response, reaction, their idea of who Jesus is. So we'll see this debate going on. And the next week, we won't get into this this week, but next week we'll finish up chapter 7. We'll look at the end of the feast and the division. We, we're going to hear some great words of Jesus there in verses 37, 38, and 39. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's going to be a great message, guys. You want to come next Sunday for sure as we talk about the Holy Spirit. Today's message might just be so-so, I don't know. But next Sunday is when you really want to hit that one. That's going to be good. Okay, no. All right. Hopefully they'll both be good. Um, 
so verse 10 now, sent his brothers on, and uh, he didn't go. Um, oh, sorry, verse 10, yeah. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now, you read that and you go, hold on a second. Did Jesus, did he just get caught in a lie with his brothers? Because he said, I'm, I'm not yet going. Oh, there's a key word there, right? I'm not yet going up to the feast. He didn't lie. He didn't, he wasn't deceptive with his brothers. He said, you guys go ahead. I'm not yet going. Didn't mean he wasn't going to go. He was going to go, but he wasn't going to go in an open way with public fanfare where people began to go, oh, there's that guy that proclaims to be the Messiah. Let's gather around. No, he comes in secretly, privately, and not with that kind of public sort of fanfare or proclamation. So now we look at this debate. Look at verse 11. Then the Jews, the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So that's very interesting here. Now, it, it tells us there that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the Jews are ready for him, right? They're all coming together and going, where is he? Where's that guy, Jesus, that's declared all these things that, you know, he's God or equal with the Father or of the Father. Son. Where's that guy that's proclaiming all these things? They're expecting him to be there. Why? Because Jesus is a, a, a Jewish man and he's following the law. He's being obedient to the law. So they recognize as this is one of the feasts where all the males were required to go, he's got to be there. So they're expecting him and they're waiting for him. But why? Because they want to kind of question him, corner him. They want to sort of, they're, they're angry at him. We've already saw in verse 1 that they wanted to kill him. So this is their agenda, their motive here, right? So Jesus comes in quietly. But then there's this debate going on where some people are going, listen, this guy, like, isn't he good? He's done nothing but good things. I mean, he's healed people. He's provided for people. He's, he's done great miracles. Like, this has got to be somebody important. Even Nicodemus in John 3, who is a, a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders, he comes to Jesus and says, oh, we know that nobody can do these things you do unless he's from the Father. So they're linking this, but not everybody's ready to do that. Some are saying there, oh, he's just a deceiver. He's a trickster. He's, a, he's, he's just a, a, a con artist here, basically. He's deceiving people. But others are, are kind of struggling through this. They're going, no, man, there's something about him. But nobody wants to speak openly or boldly and stand there and say, no, guys, you got it wrong. He is the one that we've been waiting for. Nobody wants to say that. Why? Because they feared the Jews. They were worried about the repercussions, the consequences. And let me just say, there's a lot of reasons why we can fear being open about Jesus. And maybe some of you struggle with that. You're like, man, I have a hard time just talking with other people about Jesus. And our reasons for fearing that are very small and minor. It's like, well, I don't want them to think I'm weird. I don't want them to think I'm some religious nut. And, and we, we back away over minor things like that. But for the people in this day, you could almost give them a pass because, you see, when it says that they kind of feared the Jews there, it was because they knew that if they spoke up about Jesus in opposition to the Jewish leaders, well, they could have been arrested. They would have been excommunicated from the synagogue, from temple worship, from their very activity that was the center of their life, religious and social activity. They would have been cut off from that. 
For them, it would have been just a complete loss of their livelihood, almost their identity, where it was a big deal. And so they're going, man, I don't know if I'm willing right now to risk that in speaking openly about Jesus. You can almost give them a pass. But for us, you have to go, what's our excuse? Because we don't, we don't at all line up to any of that stuff. And then we think, how come I'm so afraid sometimes to speak up boldly, openly about Jesus? We had to pray, Lord, give us, give us that, that power. Give us that filling of your Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that next Sunday, the, the role of that, the need for the Holy Spirit filling us and empowering us so we can be witnesses of the Lord. How we need to pray for that. So some of them are just fearing that. But then look at verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? So this is pretty cool. Jesus, the middle of the feast, like I said, it lasted eight days. Middle of the feast, Jesus goes up and he doesn't go into the temple because the temple building was only reserved for the priests. You had the holy, the holy place. And then you had past that, the holy of holies that only the, the high priest could enter into one day of the year. So only the priest could go into the temple. Jesus wasn't in the temple. He was in the courtyard of the temple. And there he is teaching where a lot of that kind of activity would be taking place but notice as he does people are just marveling how did he how does he know all this stuff where did he get his training because there were a, a few different like seminaries around the area that people would get trained up and they'd sit under a rabbi they would learn they would go through all their their studying and academics and everything but they know jesus we know where he's from and we know that he hasn't had that kind of history or background so how does he know with authority he spoke as a man that was like i know this stuff why does he know it because it's all about him he's the very author of the word of god could you imagine these people understood that they've got the very author of scripture the very one that scriptures are all pointing to right there delivering god's word to them could you imagine that? It'd be like, oh man this is so cool get your phones out and put this on instagram this is like the most amazing thing i've ever experienced that'd be incredible but you see, here's what oftentimes would happen is that as, as rabbis would get trained up, what they would do is they would just kind of pass down teaching that they received from other people. They never spoke from their own authority. They would say, well, Rabbi Henry said this, you know, Rabbi Steve, he said this. And they would just pass on what they heard from other people, not from their own authority. But Jesus didn't do that. He just spoke as a man that was speaking from a place of of understanding and fullness of the scripture because he's the author of it he knew it all and i love that jesus gave great place to teach the word of god he doesn't come into the temple and go hey guys let me just reveal to you some pretty awesome stuff i'm going to demonstrate some signs i'm going to do some miracles i might just break bread again and multiply it and feed y'all who knows but that would really be cool wouldn't it that would really impress you but he doesn't do that he says here's what i want to do man i want to I want to lay out God's word to you. Jesus himself placed a greater importance on teaching than he did on signs and wonders, right? So there he's teaching and the people are marveling. They're like, how does he know this stuff? But then in verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory 
But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. So what Jesus begins to lay out now for the crowds that are there, he's, he's first of all quick to deflect any glory being on himself. He says, no, it's, it's not about me. My doctrine is not mine. This is not about me. I'm not trying to point you to me. What I speak, I speak because the Father has given me. I've come to do his will. And he begins to lay out now for the people there that if you will do God's will, then you too will see that this teaching is true and that it is of God. Obedience begins, you see, to lead us into a greater understanding of who God is, what he's done, and what he says. The more that they're walking in obedience to God, the more they'll recognize that he is true. And obedience to the things of God, which is following his will, as Jesus is talking about there, leads to just that spiritual understanding of the teachings of God. Because the Jewish leaders, I mean, these guys were stubborn. They were not willing to submit to Jesus. And so because of that, they were kind of being blinded, kept from understanding the fullness of God. And that Jesus was there representing the Father, speaking on behalf of the Father, but they didn't get it. They weren't willing to submit and trust Jesus. G. Campbell Morgan puts it this way. He says, when men are holy, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, then they find out that Christ's teaching is divine, that it is indeed the teaching of God. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, he says in verse 18. See, Jesus wasn't here to draw attention to himself. And that's the wonderful working of the, of the Trinity. Jesus came to do the will of the Father and to glorify God. Then when Jesus goes to the Father, the Holy Spirit comes into the world to do what? To testify of Jesus. There's just this, this divine kind of, of order at work within the Trinity. And so Jesus wasn't there to proclaim himself to to make himself known he's there to glorify god and that's what we're all called to do isn't it do you recognize that that is why we ultimately exist is to bring glory to god and there is nothing greater than you will find in your life to do than to live in a way where you are just bringing glory to god that's when you will be at your most satisfied and, and just living that joyous life. When you begin to fulfill what you were ultimately created to do, to bring glory to God. And that's it. Very clear, very simple. Live in a manner where you are bringing honor and glory to God. Not pointing everything to you, making it about you, but saying, man, my life exists not for me, but for God. So Jesus goes on here in verse 19 to say this, Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who, who is seeking to kill you? So Jesus confronts them now, right? And he lays out for them this whole issue, really, of their, of their hypocrisy. Because they're all using the law as a cover up for acting the way that they are, which was actually breaking the law. Right? They're saying, we're trying to uphold the law which you broke, so now we're going to kill you because of that. And in so doing, they're going to break the law. They thought that Jesus was breaking the, the fourth commandment, breaking the Sabbath by healing the paralytic at the pools of Bethesda. But now they're ready to break the, is it the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not murder? Somebody want to, I, I can't, fifth or sixth? Okay, one of those two. Ninth, tenth. It's, it's 
Somewhere between 1 and 10. Somewhere between 5 and 10. Let's break it down even more. Thou shalt not murder. So they're breaking one of their laws to try to uphold another one. But you see, here's what they also did. So Jesus is confronting them. Why do you seek to kill me when you yourselves are no better? And then everybody's hearing that. The crowds, the crowds that have visited Jerusalem now for the feast that don't normally live there, that haven't heard the reports of the, the kind of stuff going on with the religious leaders who are trying to kill Jesus. They don't know this. And so they're thinking, Jesus, are you crazy? Who's trying to kill you? Now, we think you're pretty awesome. We think you're doing a good work. We're not. Who's trying to kill you? They don't know what's going on with the Jewish leaders. And, and, and never would they think that these religious elite would stoop to the levels to even do something like that. So they're kind of shocked. They're thinking, Jesus, you're, you know, in the sun too long. What's happening here? But look at verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Therefore, or sorry, Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment. So here's what's going on. Jesus, Jesus lays out for them now an area that they were applying the same principle in breaking the law to apply the law. He brings up circumcision because the law of Moses says that you need to circumcise your male child on the eighth day, which is interesting because, you know, um, medical science has begun to see that the eighth day is kind of like the perfect day when the child is going to feel the least amount of pain, but where the blood is able to clot and, and, and handle that kind of procedure the best. And yet Jesus all the way back, you know, to the beginning. And this is the thing that Jesus says, this isn't a law for Moses. That goes all the way back to the fathers when Abraham was given that as a requirement that went before the law. But so Jesus, or sorry, God, just in, in, in perfect understanding, gives us law, eighth day, circumcised. So the Pharisees now, the religious leaders, whenever a child was born, and if that eighth day fell on the Sabbath, well, they would perform this work, breaking their understanding of the law to do this work. And yet Jesus is saying, you're doing the exact same thing that you're blaming me for. And remember, Jesus didn't, break the law in doing a work on the Sabbath by healing a man. It just simply broke their interpretation and their traditions of the law. Because as they begin to see, thou shalt do no work on the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? So the leader, the religious leaders began to make all these rules to say, here's what is going to be work. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can only do this. And they began to break it down to make sure that they wouldn't break the law. But in so doing, they added all these traditions and their own interpretation that went above and beyond what the heart of the law was for. And so Jesus didn't break their law. He simply broke their tradition. The very thing that got them so angry, thinking that Jesus would do that, yet Jesus turns the tables on them. You do a work of circumcision, and that's not a fun work. That's not a, hel- that's not a, a, a good work in the sense that, man, that can... That can inflict a little bit of pain on a child. It's not comfortable. It's not enjoyable to see. Yet Jesus says, man, I've made a man well. Complete wholeness, healing. This man is, is experiencing life now. I think that's a fitting picture of people that try to live by the law. 
It's like circumcision. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not always going to be pleasant. When you're trying to live by the law, that's not what God has for you. But Jesus says, man, I've come to make you whole and to give you life so you can enjoy life. That's the difference. There are people that have not come into that grace of Jesus and the life that he has when they've continued to try to observe the law and live legalistically to think that their works are earning them favor with God. That's by their own righteousness that they're going to be right with God. That's not the case. It just adds burden and heaviness. Jesus came to lift that from you and to make you well, to make you whole. I love that. So Jesus says in verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And you see, that's a problem so often. It's like what these guys were doing. They were looking at what Jesus did, but they weren't judging with pure motives or even an understanding of the full picture here. That's why we need to be so careful in judging. Why we need to oftentimes just leave it to the Lord. Because when we see something, all we see is the externals. And we don't know what's really going on in the heart of that person, the motives for what they're doing, what's really gone on. We don't have the whole picture. But God does. And when we're judging just on appearance, we oftentimes miss things. We don't have that righteous judgment that Jesus has because he judges the heart and the motives of man. He knows the fuller picture. That's why we need to leave that judging for the Lord. Well, verse 25, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So the crowds are hearing Jesus speaking back to the religious leaders. And guess what? As he gives these things out to the religious leaders, as often happened, they're like silenced. They're like, oh man, he's got us. Oh man, I don't know what to say in response. He was always able to direct things back on them where they began to realize their own error. But they're not able to respond. So the crowds are listening to this going, Oh, do they actually think that he's the Messiah? Are they, are, are they starting to believe now? They got nothing to say. But then the crowd quickly began to think, well, hold on. How could this be Jesus? Because we know where he's from. You see, they began to have this idea, this assumption, that when the Messiah came onto the scene, he would just appear out of nowhere and, and come out of nowhere as the Messiah and be like, here I am, guys. Come to do the work of the Messiah. But now they've begun to see Jesus grow up in Nazareth, ministering on Galilee, and they're like, well, no, we know this. this he can't really be the Messiah, can he? And, and some believe that they may have gotten this kind of idea from Malachi 3.1 that says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So that's kind of the idea they began to have, that Jesus can all of a sudden show up out of nowhere without warning, and be like, I'm here, guys. The long awaited Messiah that you've been expecting, here I am. And they kind of missed those scriptures, like Micah 5, 2, that talked about where Jesus would be born, you know, and, and, and all these things. And so they were just living by their own preconceived ideas, and it was tripping them up. Well, look at verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. 
Now again, here's Jesus giving great importance to his origin. And that's really why, why John is writing this gospel again, is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then, of course, by believing in his name, you might have life. And, and so Jesus oftentimes gave that word to reveal that he's not here on his own, fulfilling his own mission. He's from the Father, right? And basically what Jesus is saying, some see that he's kind of almost speaking with an element of, uh, of sarcasm or questioning here, as though he's saying, oh, you know me, do you? You, you think you know me? And, and you claim to know where I'm from? You think you got it all together? It's almost like he's kind of saying, like, you think you really have this all pieced together? Because you're missing it. He's like saying, you, you're not getting it. I'm from the Father here. The truth is that Jesus has not come of himself. They didn't truly know who Jesus was. They were only looking at him from an earthly standpoint. They didn't know God, so they didn't recognize Jesus either. So he states his heavenly origin, that he's from God, that he's one with God, and he declares his divine commission now. Look at verse 30. It says there, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Now, I want you to catch something here. They're all fed up with Jesus. Like, enough! This guy keeps claiming himself to be God. So what do they do? They sought to take him. They want to silence him. They're ready to do him in. But guess what? No one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour not yet come. Because God had a divine protection on Jesus until it was the right time for him to come and submit himself to the cross. I'm so grateful for that. I believe that we are all living our lives in the Lord's hands and he's got an appointed time for us. See, we oftentimes live in great fear thinking, oh my goodness, if I go there, something's going to happen to me or this, this might happen and, and I don't know about that. And, and we live in such fear where we should be living in trust going, listen, I don't believe that anything's going to happen to me until it's the appointed time. Until God allows, that there's a time where God has where I'm going to breathe my last and I'll be with him. But until that time, I don't know if anything can really happen to me. Now, we got to be careful that we don't tempt that in any way, that we don't start living recklessly and going, okay, well, nothing's going to happen to me then until the point in time, so I'm just going to go out and go parachuting without a parachute, you know? Go skydiving, no parachute, Right? That's not going to be wise. God will be saying, yeah, well, t- that is your day to die then, definitely. That's the day that I've appointed. The foolish day that you're thinking it's going to be. So we don't want to tempt those things, but I don't think we need to be careful that we're not living in this fear of thinking something can befall us apart from what God is going to allow. And for Jesus, man, when they're ready to take him, God's like, sorry, not the right time. And there's divine protection where he was just hidden away and i'm glad for that and so people start thinking now that can this really be the christ this god because who else can do the signs that he does and they were seeing jesus do many things more than what's recorded in the gospel of john lots more john says i can't even i can't all the libraries couldn't contain the books that i could write about the things that jesus did and said so we know that he did a lot more so they're starting to realize like 
man, when you start to add this up, he's got to be the guy. Just like Nicodemus proclaimed, nobody can do these things that you do unless the Father sent him. Well, let's wrap this up. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring, murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? That's where the Jews were living outside of of Israel. They were living among the Greeks in different places of the world where they had been led away into captivity previously and continue to inhabit those areas. So they're thinking, is he going to go out to those people there? And then they say, what is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So they're very puzzled over these words that Jesus said. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to just kind of end our service with a song. But let me just wrap this up for us here, because Jesus says something very important, and he lets them know. i got a work to do, and when that work is done, I'm not going to be here with you any longer. You might seek me, but you're not going to find me. You're not going to find me because I'm going to be hidden safe with the Lord, but there's going to come a day where I'm going to ascend back to the Father and I'll be with him. And, and you may seek me, but you're not going to find me. You know, there's a lot of people that think, well, in that day when I die and I stand before God, well, that'll be a day that I'll just kind of, you know, he'll just forgive everything. That'll be the day that I'll, if, if he's real, well, then that'll be the day that I really kind of, you know, surrender to him. But you know what? It's going to be too late at that time. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Seek him while he may be found because he has made himself available to you. We've seen over and over again in John just that invitation that's being given. Come and see. Taste and see of the Lord. And so we're called to seek him right now while he may be found. Are you doing that? Are you looking to the Lord? Are you placing your life in his hands, are you putting your trust in him? Because you never know when you're going to breathe your last, when it's going to be the appointed time for God to take you home. We have no guarantees of tomorrow. That's why we need to be sure that today we have done business with the Lord, that we have recognized what he's done for us by dying on a cross to forgive us of our sin so that he could bring us into right relationship with God by our trust in him. Today's the day to do that. And I pray that everybody sitting in this room has done that. If you haven't, I ask you, what are you waiting for? Don't put it off. All you need to do is pray a simple prayer that simply acknowledges your sin, that you are not right with God, but you recognize that Jesus came to make you right with God through his work by dying on a cross. He took all of your sin upon himself so that he could give you his righteousness. Put your faith in Jesus. Be right with God today through Jesus. Seek him while he may be found. And we're going to just take some time right now to seek the Lord. And just to allow that word today that we've seen and studied just to be planted in our hearts. And ask the Lord to do that work. Whatever he's been maybe ministering to you today. And whatever he's been speaking to you about here today. Just ask him to continue to just cement that in your heart to plant it deep where roots can grow and and fruit can be born so let's stand together and just sing a, a song in closing and just take this time before the lord to do those things